years ago, my therapist, who I am still convinced knew just about everything, or at least most of just about everything, told me that the purpose of life on this earth was to become whole. But he never told me, definitively anyway, what wholeness actually was, or really how the heck to get there. Today, we talk to spiritual thought leader TJ Woodward, who comes as close to defining wholeness and how to get there as I've ever heard. In addition, he will talk about how the ego manifests itself in our lives, for good and for ill, and what we can do to improve our relationship with what he calls the essential self. In addition, we will examine such questions as, what truly lies at the roots of human conflict? How can we benefit as a human race from reframing ideas such as battling addiction or cancer or illness and move into a place of acceptance and healing? What does that do for us? My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. So TJ, who are you and why should anyone care? My name is TJ Woodward. I don't know why anyone should care, but what I will say is that I lived for a long time on planet Earth in deep psychic pain and disconnection. I found a way out, and that way out was returning to my own wholeness. In the world, I'm the creator and the CEO of Conscious Recovery, which is a book, a workbook, some online courses, and a modality of mental health care and addiction treatment. Excellent. Uh, what is our topic today, TJ? Our topic today is a return to wholeness. And what does that even mean? Well, I think if you look at um, our world in general, but specifically the mental health world and behavioral health and addiction treatment world, we tend to look at our clients through the lens of what's broken about them. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, we come into this world as whole and perfect beings. There is this essential self, this essential truth that is actually unharmed and unharmable. And wellness for me is about returning to that place of wholeness rather than looking at some destination that's in the future or a destination that's outside of ourselves. So it's a really different framework. It's more about returning to the perfection that we are rather than seeking that in the world. I remember I once asked Seymour, my old therapist, I said, what's the point of, of life? And he said, the point of life is to be whole or to become whole. Do you think that someone who returns to a state of wholeness or drives towards wholeness is actually infantile? Like what is the difference say, between it? A, a, <laughs> this is kind of an odd concrete question, but what's the difference between a, a baby who is whole and a 50 year old man or a woman who's reached wholeness or is growing towards it? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, right? Because when we come into the world, I can say, of course, we're spiritually whole, but we also know our brains aren't developed at all. So one of the reasons that I frame it as returning to that before our brain develops and before we learn these ideas of good, bad, right, wrong, us, them, we are purely in touch with energy. And we're also very much open and connected and really need love reflected back. And that gets taught out of us, right? We come into a world that teaches us about what it means to be male, what it means to be female, how we act based on our socioeconomic status, our race, etc. So we end up getting programmed by the world. Now, obviously, some of that is important. We need to teach our children not to run out into traffic. But unfortunately, many of us also get taught that there's something fundamentally wrong with us, even if that message isn't direct. So 
to answer your question, in some ways we do actually return to that infantile state. The childlike state to me is spirituality because we can spend years in spiritual practice trying to become more present, more open-hearted, more in the flow of life. And if you look at a very small child, that's inherent with them. Isn't a small child though, you heard about like infantile narcissism, like for a child, the whole world is them. And this is, maybe I'm messing with words too much, but in a way, are you promoting narcissism? <laughs> are you saying <laughs> that we should get back to this infantile state where everything is just about us? Well, it's interesting, right? Because for me, everything is paradoxical. Okay. Because of course I can say the intention is to return to wholeness. The reason I love talking with you is then you're going to give me all these different points of view. And then we <laughs> have the opportunity to kind of go deeper into it. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is this and that, not this or that, okay. right? And so that is true. And that's a big part of how we end up getting programmed, right? Mm -hmm. So if mom, dad, caregiver gets upset because our young narcissism, we believe it's about us. I believe it's about me. And if one of my caregivers is angry, then I believe there's something wrong with me. You know, in that way, part of that is how we get programmed. I'm speaking of it more from the spiritual room, right? Because... So many of us struggle in the world because we suffer because we can't accept what is. Mm -hmm. We resist life. We battle with our own thoughts, our own demons, our own shadow. So in that way, if you imagine a young child that hasn't developed all that yet, there's a pureness about that child. Mm -hmm. So I don't think the goal is to not have our mind. Obviously, we need it to survive. But when the mind dominates, or if, for example, we are only focused on what we call physical reality, our bodies, mm -hmm. what we can see, touch, and taste, we're missing a huge part of life. Mm -hmm. To me, it's actually about integrating all of that, mm -hmm. the mental, the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual. But so many of us have been taught that it's the mind and the physical self that is the true reality. And I'm just offering that it's that and something mm -hmm. more. I think Jung would say that it's not just the ego reality. Just for those of you listening at home, TJ and I essentially say the same stuff, but we use totally different philosophers. We disagree vehemently until we suddenly agree. <laughs> so we have different sources. So what TJ is saying in my brain is the ego. And I feel like a lot of religions and spiritual practices have basically an unconscious, conscious, or ego self construct where there's the world of stuff and your five senses and things that you want, your dreams, your hopes, your, and all that stuff. And then beneath all that is the eternal spiritual whole godly self unconscious Jung talked about that healing was about connecting the ego to the self or the conscious to the unconscious and pulling up what is unconscious into the conscious world yeah is that sound about right that sounds exactly right and actually believe it or not i use Jung a lot because i think <sighs> he was probably one of the best one of the greatest spiritual teachers of our time but i don't know that he he did use that word some but very sparingly so when i talk about the essential wholeness i'm actually talking about the super conscious which which word did he use sparingly spiritual spiritual okay so a super say that super so it's the conscious the conscious mind or what we call it commonly referred to as the ego it's the okay. personality se self okay a collection of beliefs and ideas and jung actually said we spend the first 40 years of our life uh, developing an ego in the second 40 <laughs> years um, i can't remember what word he used but maybe dissolving the ego yeah. so he said life begins at 40 well my life began at 40 in a completely new way because 
my first 40 years, I thought I had to learn, right? I had thought I had to know. I was seeking answers. I thought if I could just figure it out. And all that's a function of the ego, which again, some spiritual teachings actually say the goal is to get rid of the ego. Right. I don't believe that. Right. We're human beings. And so the ego is actually an important part of life. The issue, though, is when I believe I am my ego. Mm -hmm. And that's the shift that happened for me at 40. I started mm -hmm. to unlearn, unlearn all those core beliefs and ideas. And you mentioned the unconscious or the subconscious. So that's where all of that is trapped. So Carl Jung, my favorite quote, I actually open my new book with a quote from him. And that is, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will direct our life and we call it fate. We ouch. That's a good one. Can you give us an example, maybe from your own life, of the difference between an ego, I am my ego, and like, like paint us a picture of a human being, perhaps yourself, who is believing that I am my ego, and then walk us through what it might look like as that is deconstructed and switched around. Absolutely. So it, again, if the ego is the personality self or thoughts live there, right? Perspectives. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, I'm right and you are wrong, or I have a lot of opinions about this, right? Mm -hmm. And we live in a highly opinionated culture. Mm -hmm. That's a function of the ego. We have certain political figures that are just so awesome because they're like the perfect demonstration of a person who believes they are their ego. Mm -hmm. I need my name on everything. I need to like say that I have the right answer. Mm -hmm. And the reality is we all have that. I have that. You have that. We all have that. Having that be in charge is what in my life is suffering. Because if I believe I am right, then I live in a world where I'm looking at the world as wrong in some way. So we can see that that's suffering. Mm -hmm. When that's in charge, I'm never going to be happy because the world is never going to conform to my point of view, not yeah. completely. When I recognize that I have thoughts, mm -hmm. I have perspectives, but I'm not those perspectives, I can start to actually observe them and I can recognize there's something much truer or deeper than my opinionating mind. I thought the goal was to get rid of the mind. Mm -hmm. I even heard people say, the intention of meditation is to quiet your mind. That is not true for me today. Mm -hmm. It is about the observer. Because if we talk about the ego as relative reality, something that's always changing, I can recognize my thoughts and feelings live there. When I tap into my essential beingness or the truth of who I am, I can witness those and I don't have the same attachment to them. Right. So it's not that I don't have opinions, it's just they lose their importance in my life. Let's take two human beings, one who is totally identified with their ego and one who kind of isn't. Would one, one would be driving a faster car, one would be, I mean, what would that person's life actually look like? Well, let's look at relationships. Let's imagine that you're in an intimate partnership, a marriage. If I'm living in my ego, I'm gonna say things like, I'm not getting my needs met right now, ah, okay. right? Because I have an idea that you need to somehow meet my needs. Now, that doesn't mean I don't have needs, but when I'm living deeply in my ego, there's going to be a lot more conflict because when I believe I am my thoughts, I'm going to debate your thoughts that are counter to that. When I can look at life through the lens of wholeness, I can recognize that my points of view are not as solid as I once believed. So again, I can observe those points of view and I can recognize 
The deeper conversation here is that life is perspective. So it's not that one person is right and one person is wrong. Mm -hmm. How many times have we heard there's your version, my version, the truth is in the middle. To me, the greater reality is from my ego perspective, we're both 100% correct. Right. Because our points of view create reality. So if I'm not living from my ego, mm -hmm. I can allow you to have your point of view and I no longer need to debate it. Right. I can recognize your opinion and point of view is equal to mine, a function of the mind, but not the truth of who I am. A, a couple of friends of mine were involved in a bitter fight the other night. One of my friends has got a, a troubling relationship with alcohol. And at one point, <laughs> his, his girlfriend decided to hide his bottle of mezcal, saying, you've had enough to drink. Now, you know and I know that in the world of addiction, that is the worst possible thing, worst possible ego move that you can make. I'm going to hide your alcohol from you. And the, the gentleman whose alcohol was hidden got very pissed off and began, <laughs> he, <laughs> he got really pissed off and he started like pouring olive oil over her clothes, like saying, fuck you, you know, you can't do this to me. And it was just this insane fight. And so I got them both on the phone. I was like, look, people, you're being babies. You've got to rise above this. You're in a power struggle. Drop the rope, cut it out, go apologize to each other, sober the fuck up, and then have a conversation tomorrow about your, how alcohol is functioning in your relationship and how you guys are going to resolve issues. Because they were so locked in a power struggle, the partner, the one girl, she was so pissed off she was going to go sleep in her car. I'm like, I'm not letting this guy's girlfriend sleep in her fucking car in San Francisco. No. Like, I just couldn't do it. That was my own ego shit. <laughs> my own ego stuff was coming up. But they were locked horns, man. And when people are locked horns in that ego struggle, it's just, you know, Seymour talked about that the ultimate moment in a relationship is when a couple is in the middle of a bitter fight and they both bust out laughing. Exactly, because that's the moment, quite possibly, when I can witness my ego for what it really is. And it is both absurd and comical because it's something that creates separation. So if we look a little deeper here, when I'm out of touch with my wholeness, mm -hmm. I look to the world to feel whole and complete. That's why we have euphoric honeymoon periods in relationships. Yeah, We meet someone and it's like, oh my gosh, this person completes me. Now we may not say that, <laughs> yeah, we may but, not acknowledge it. we sure feel it. <laughs> we can sure feel it, right? Yeah. And then three months later, you know, they still fart and do the things they do in relationships. Yeah. But the, again, the deeper point is they don't complete me. When I feel incomplete and I look to the world to complete me, yeah. it can only have a temporary result. So the number one thing I can do in a relationship is heal myself and return to a sense of wholeness. Now, most human beings I know come in and out of that, right? It's not like I'm, because I had a, I had a client ask me one time, so do you walk around all the time knowing your wholeness, knowing your oneness with source, and being at ease with everything? And my answer is yes, but I don't always know it. <laughs> funny. Right? I forget that. And yeah. so I can come back to that, come back to that. And that's a moment-to-moment -moment opportunity. And the thing is, if I know my own wholeness, Mm -hmm. What do I really need from my partner? It's more about sharing. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have issues or mm -hmm. something can't get resolved. But one of the ways I work with my husband, for example, is I'll say, you know, I'm making up a story right now. Mm -hmm. And the story I'm making up is you're withdrawn or you feel withdrawn because of this, or I said this and you were hurt, whatever that story is, because we recognize that it's usually 
not accurate to what their experience. Again, it's not right or wrong. My perspective is different than his, so we get to have a conversation mm-hmm. about that. And isn't when a couple is locked in a fight, it's a form of narcissism? Because if you're in love, you're seeing the best parts of yourself projected onto that other person. And when that person violates your narcissism, your view of what is whole and beautiful and wonderful, you go apeshit. Well, let's break down narcissism because I I like to be as controversial as possible. So the DSM that we use in the mental health field. And what is the DSM? You tell me. It's the diagnostic. I can never get the fucking name right. (laughs) The Diagnostic Statistical Manual Manual. of, of Mental Disorders for Dyslexic therapists who can't get the fucking letter straight. Right. So here's the thing. <laughs> so what the DSM is, is a set of symptoms mm-hmm. purely. That's it. And it's if you been have three symptoms from this cluster and two from this, we're going to give you this diagnosis. Poof. The issue with that is twofold. One, I am not my symptoms. Mm-hmm. So that's pure ego. Symptoms, behaviors are all in the ego. The deeper issue in the mental health field or behavioral health field is many people have been taught that it must be organic or chemical. And the truth is we don't know if it is. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's not, but what I am saying is we don't know if it is. So I'm more curious about what's underneath these diagnoses. Mm -hmm. When we use a term like disorder, what does that create? When I look at my client and say, you have a personality disorder, and we even call it abnormal psychology. I mean, we have all these labels. So let's look at narcissism for a moment. It's all about me, right? That's, That's the very clinical definition. That's purely an ego. I believe I am my ego. That's really what narcissism is. I'm my personality. It's all about me getting my way Um, Anything you do is really a reflection of me. But there's no consciousness that you're doing that. It's sort of like all roads lead to me, but you don't even know that the roads are leading to you because in your reality, anything that is not directed at you is, is insane or wrong or bad. Right. And all of us do that to greater or lesser degrees. If I were completely conscious of what was happening in the subconscious, I would not be living from it or acting from it. I would Mm -hmm. be aware that I have a choice. Mm -hmm. Okay. When I think of narcissism, I don't really think of the DSM, actually. I think of Narcissus. I think of the Greek myth, and I think of the element of narcissism as something that is endemic to the human experience. Mm-hmm. And that's like, it's more extreme in others than some, and it, there's a spectrum of it. And when you go way on the spectrum, like way far out there, you get yourself uh, someone with who's a sociopath. You know what I'm saying? And Absolutely. It, and I just think what's really funny is that when someone is in love, there is something childlike about them. And in some ways, maybe it's because they let down all the defenses for a while. Yeah. They're more open. And maybe all humans are narcissistic to a degree. Well, certainly. I guess I just, it's an interesting phenomenon to track. It's sort of like, this is kind of a stretch, but it's like redshift, blue shift, light. We kind of shift from narcissism, which is ego stuff, to like being more in the self and more whole. Mm-hmm. And uh, narcissism is both good and bad. It does good things. It, well, it, it, it creates marriages. <laughs> and then it also breaks them up. Yeah, and it creates uh, businesses. It creates all sorts of things. I, at one point, was going to write a book called The Enlightened Narcissist. Oh, boy. Right? Can I, I should... use my personality and my own narcissism to do good in the world or to make a difference, a positive difference in the yeah. world? And I think the truth is, sure, absolutely. And But even that's limited, right? Because 
the intention here is to come more from our essential beingness. So if I can use the personality as a vehicle to deliver that rather than believing that I am that, mm-hmm. and it's it's subtle, but it's actually a completely different way of living. Mm-hmm. So have we figured out what wholeness is yet? Well, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'd, I'd ask. Well, and maybe maybe it's not to be figured out. You know, maybe it's to be experienced, right? Have I, have I had those moments where I realize very deeply that I'm not my past, I'm not my trauma, I'm not what's happened to me, and you can't see this for the listeners, but I'm using air quotes. Yeah, I'm something much deeper, something more essential. Well, here's here's something I want to bring up. Um, it's a little bit political, but what the hell? Uh, you know the term woke? I'm sure you've heard that, right? Of course. And people these days are getting so woke on their political issues that they it's like they they think that if they acquire the correct political position that they'll be enlightened that they'll it's like it's like a political nirvana it's weird i'm noticing that people will take a political event and hang their head on it and say see look look how important this wokeness is here whatever the event is i mean you can take your pick i think it's adi ashanti that said nothing is more dangerous than an ego that believes it's god yeah right and so Politics in general is an egoic structure because ego is right and wrong and good and bad. So again, looking at it through the lens of there's nothing inherently wrong with the ego, politics serve a purpose. But when I believe I am my affiliation, uh, we start to see all sorts of absurd things happening in the world because then it becomes us and them, good and bad. And as you're saying, if I can just affiliate or align with a particular belief system, I will be a better person. I'm going to bring up something touchy. I'm going to bring up the shooting in Georgia with, of course, the caveat that that's one of the most depressing things we've ever seen. That the video is dark and scary and makes you want to go crawl into a hole and cry. Having said that, like I'm torn because I think the amount of attention it's getting is is in some ways totally appropriate because they were going to those guys were going to get off, right? Until social media swooped in and did its thing. But at the same time, those two white guys look the part. The black guy looks the part. The just in the right state. He was going for a fucking jog, you know. It's also um reminiscent of what's that movie Easy Rider, I think, has Jack Nicholson in it. It's about these two motorcyclists that go across country just to kind of see the world. And the the movie ends with two hicks in a pickup truck blowing them away with a shotgun. It's like there's this archetype of the the two dumpy white guys in the thing doing this horrible thing. And there's this kind of, there's juice around it, you know, for people. And so I'm looking at this and I'm like, like I support the movement, but I kind of am worried about it. I'm worried about how we're taking this incident and making it as though as though we are god and we know like the, the amount of hate i'm seeing on the internet of like put these two fuckers string them up you know or hang them or i hope they rot in prison and yeah they need to serve their time and do their thing but the amount of vitriol and hatred that i'm seeing from people is not in textually dissimilar from the hatred that they were exuding that brought them to, to kill that poor dude and who was jogging. Right. Am I making sense? Absolutely. Okay. And it is definitely a touchy subject. I think the issue with this conversation, because we're talking about multiple things. One piece we're talking about is the whole idea of vengefulness or revenge. Right. Right. We commonly believe, for example, that if we give someone the death penalty, somehow we're going to feel better. But that actually just is not true because that's not really the solution. And so 
I can easily say that I understand why people are so angry. Mm-hmm. I understand why people point to someone and say that person's evil. Once we get rid of them, then everything will be okay. But that's not really the issue. The issue is much deeper. Uh, the issue, I think, is that we've identified with something that's not ultimately true. I am not my race. I am not my uh, personality self, mm-hmm. but I do have it. Because I want to be clear, because what sometimes people hear is that I am saying something like, that doesn't matter, or let's look beyond that. And that's not the solution either. Mm-hmm. Because If I don't address my shadow, it cannot heal. And when events like this happen in the world, that is the shadow. Racism is the shadow because we are looking at a group of people based on the color of their skin as being fundamentally lesser or greater. Nothing could be more of an example of the shadow or of the unconscious or of the ego, right? Pitting people against each other because of that. What happens, though, is people think then the solution is to fight that. Let's look at it first as an individual. You and I work with people in addiction. If they're fighting their addiction, does it really work, right? There has to be some kind of surrender to it. There has to be some kind of acknowledgement of what's in the shadow and what's driving it. What's driving all the isms is people out of touch with their own wholeness. Now, People will say, well, that's a little bit of a Pollyanna answer to a really big issue, but ultimately that's what's happening. Now, how we get there is a mystery. I know how I got there in my life. I spent a lot of years looking at my point of view, my perspective, the decisions I made about myself in the world, and I started to question all of those. So if we can do that collectively, we can start to heal. But until then, we will continue to see horrific acts and horrific responses to the act. And that's just the cycle. That's the ego cycle. That's why we have war. As our country, we had a horrific event that was 9-11. And so we collectively believed that it was someone's fault and it wasn't. We collectively believed there were weapons of mass destruction that literally didn't exist. And we retaliated, which has created more violence coming back toward us. That's a fact. And that's the human ego. So we have to pause. In our culture, we have things that we're calling a pandemic. We get into fear about that. Again, I'm not saying the pandemic isn't real. I'm not saying the shooting isn't horrific. I'm not saying 9-11 wasn't horrific. But our response to it, if we come back at it with that same energy, we're going to make, we're going to perpetuate more. Yeah. Essentially, there's two processes. There's the event itself, and then there's our reaction to it. And I learned this from Seymour, of course, that, you know, somebody who's like a consummate one-upper is doing that because they feel in their in their very much in their ego and they're feeling very diminished someone who's racist will do that if they're feeling they they say you know carl jung talked about the i think called it the blonde beast or something of germany that was depleted and they needed to project their own sense of defeat onto the jew and so on right and so if we can't internalize our pain and, and access the unconscious and integrate our shadow, we are going to externalize it and feel in the moment kind of good because I put this person down, now I'm feeling whole. And all problems, all wars, all racism, all shootings, all of them are all connected to that one singular idea is that it's the externalization of someone trying to heal themselves. I mean, if you think about it in a really weird way, those guys chasing after those that they thought, they probably thought they were protecting their community. They thought we're protecting ourselves. We're making ourselves better by chasing down this guy with two shotguns. 
which is so fucking ridiculous. It makes me mad to think about. But they thought they were doing something good, right? Instead of like looking in themselves, say, wait a minute, maybe, maybe we should call the police. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't carry shotguns. Maybe we should just leave that guy alone and ask ourselves, what can we do to like, I don't know, safeguard, you know, have more locks in your door. I don't know, something, you know what I'm saying? Something more internal as opposed to going and chasing some poor dude down the street. Well, you're you're speaking to the root of it. So I appreciate that because Lao Tzu said 3,000 years ago, the greatest gift I can offer the world is that of my own transformation. Ooh, did he I, say that? He sure did. Or at least, wanna... well, you know, there's a great meme on Facebook I've seen that says, I'm pretty darn sure I never said that, the Buddha. So <laughs> it is attributed to Lao Tzu. <laughs> the greatest gift I can offer the world is my transformation, my own transformation. Now, when, and he goes on to say, when I eradicate what is dark within me, that's the way we serve or save the world. So what you said is so powerful. The number one thing that each of us needs to do right in this moment is to feel what is happening internally without the story. That's the ego. The ego justifies. And then we build coalitions. Yeah political parties the story meaning the narrative in our head like that person's bad i'm good you're all white people are all, all, all women black, are all, blah, all blah, gay blah. people are whatever the, yeah. yeah yeah when we do that then we um we're living from our ego nothing inherently wrong with that but see how the theme keeps coming back if i believe that's who i am i need to defend myself right and so the way you said it is if i'm not integrating my own shadow i project it outward yeah you know if you look at addiction right? Most addiction modalities focus on symptoms and behaviors. Um, we try to teach our clients how to not drink or use when the craving comes up. That's not the place to work. The craving will win out eventually. So we need to look at what's actually underneath that. So, you know, you were saying in a case like this horrific event that happened, we're not saying that it's good or okay that it happened but what we're inviting is for each of us to take a deeper look healing the soul of our world is getting in touch with what needs to be integrated within myself so i no longer have to project outward yeah that really is it um for those of you listening at home <laughs> uh, tj and i do specialize in addiction so that's why this subject keeps coming up and i'm kind of sort of steering away from that because we already did a podcast on that um if you all want to listen to it, it's called the gift of addiction it's about 10 episodes back and it's awesome listen to it um we got it's it, we were about 33 minutes in i mean what do you what, what, what do you want to focus on to me the million dollar question is how do we return to our wholeness so if we are um, exploring the possibility that what Ben and I are talking about is there's an essential self underneath all of this. Mm -hmm. And there's a subconscious or an unconscious where we've buried all these beliefs and ideas about ourselves and the world. And based on that, we've created an ego, which could be seen as a shell around all of that. And that usually shows up as beliefs and ideas, which create conflict and separation. So how do we return to wholeness? What are the steps? <laughs> yeah, what are the steps? <laughs> yeah, that's funny because like the only the ego would ask such a question. Amen to that. I feel like the point of existence in a way is for the ego to discover itself in a sense. So what are some steps that people can, what can people do? So I think it's twofold, or there are two subsets of practices. One, how do I connect with my essential self? Meditation, mindfulness, which you know could be seen as the same thing. 
spending time in the silence is what I really mean. And I don't mean walking on a beautiful day down a path. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about spending some dedicated time really connecting with the energy field that's beneath the human body. That's Eckhart Tolle says, get in touch with the energy field beneath the skin. I love that, right? So we can say, I'm not my body. I'm much more than that. But what are we? Be curious about that. Spend time cultivating a relationship with that. The second umbrella, which is really large one, is unlearning everything I've ever been taught that is not pointing back to the essential self, which is just about everything we teach our humans on planet Earth. We domesticate them to believe that they're, they are supposed to act a certain way because they're a boy. They need to act a certain way because they are their race. We hear people say, you know, you're not black enough. You're not white enough. We hear people say, uh, you throw like a girl, you walk like a girl. I mean, I got that all of my life growing up we get programmed. So the second part of returning to wholeness for me is unlearning all of that, questioning all of that, becoming curious about all of that. And to me, it becomes profoundly simple. What does this belief or point of view create in my life? Is it moving me closer to the life I want to live or further away? Is this a productive position to take? Is this story helpful? Yeah. Yeah. I talk to my patients a lot about the frames that they have on reality. Like if someone's in a depressive frame, it's like everything leads downwards and they kind of revel in it. And I ask them, you know, is this frame working for you? Like, no, it's not working for me. Well, how are we going to break out of it? Well, I don't know, but at least it gets them thinking about it, you know? So my ego mind has this four-step process for you, Ben, and for the listeners. Four-step process. Here it comes. We quite often tend to ask each other and ourselves, in what way is this not working? Mm -hmm. I have a different way of working with it. If I notice a strategy or a point of view, and when I say strategy, a strategy could be addiction, a strategy could be overeating, a strategy could be getting really busy, uh, spending my whole day on the internet. It could be depression, it could be anxiety. Now those usually aren't conscious strategies. I don't think anyone wakes up and says, I hope today is a really, really depressive day. That's an unconscious strategy to try to manage something. So here are my four steps. Okay. One, gratitude. All right. Thank you, anxiety. I know you have served me well in my life. Thank you, cocaine. (laughs) You have really helped me in the past. And genuinely get into the frequency of gratitude for it. Then ask the question, in what ways has this served me throughout my life? And I really encourage people because it's almost taboo. What do you mean? I'm not supposed to overeat. That's bad. So let's talk about how we get rid of it. We're going to start with having gratitude for it. And then we're going to look at all the ways that it has served you. It kept you sane. And then the third one is, in what ways is it not serving you? Mm -hmm. And then look at all of that. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth one is, what do you truly desire? And I don't think we can get down to what I truly desire without those first few steps. Because when we resist something, I'm bad for overeating. So I, I go into the wrongness of that. And then if, if I call it negative, negative behavior, negative emotions, I don't believe that in either one of those mm-hmm. to be true. I don't right. believe those are true. You have a, you call them brilliant strategies? I do. You want to talk about that? Uh, a lot of times we talk about things in terms of defense mechanism, mm-hmm. coping strategies. Mm-hmm. Look at those words. A defense is a fight, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to put up a wall. That's one way I defend. Or I'm going to fight you. Or I'm going to retreat, fight, flight, or freeze. Those are all the commonly used language. But beyond the language, it's a framework. I mean, we literally 
put someone in the grave and write an obituary about them that says they lost their battle with cancer. And we do it over and over and over again. And it's like, wow, we really are in such a paradigm of good, bad, right, wrong, we don't even notice we're doing it. And if someone heals from cancer, we say they fought the fight and they won. But the reality is, everyone, I've got a big newsflash for you. We're going to (laughs) die. So I call these strategies brilliant strategies just for the reason I did before, that four steps. Gratitude. I'm grateful for this strategy. Because some people are like, well, if I'm grateful for it, how do I get rid of it? The litmus test is this. What is a better activator of change? gratitude or resistance, self-love or self-criticism. If I have a two-year-old child that is having an emotional experience, we call it a meltdown, but it's really just the human experience. It's an expression of pain, an expression of, hey, I am over here, I need to be be held or whatever it is. I need something. I need something. Yeah, if I hadn't had food when I was a kid, I mean, food was the only way I experienced love and closeness. And if I hadn't have had that, I, I think I would have turned into, you know, God knows what, but right. but it was really essential that I be that I be a food uh, addict, I suppose. Yeah. So if you if you looked at it in terms of overeating or whatever name you gave it, yeah. Thank you, food. Right. You helped me feel really safe. Mm-hmm. In what ways did food serve you? Really get in touch with that. Wow, I'm so grateful. Right. So grateful. And now, in what ways is it not serving me? Because the simplest truth is, we don't change behavior on what we don't want. We change behavior on what we do want. And so if I don't want to be overweight and I don't want to overeat, what am I going to do? If I do look at the gratitude, oh my gosh, it's really served me well. And then I recognize I have a choice. It's also not serving me. Like in my story, at age seven, I built a wall around my heart. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge wall. It was like the the, the doors closed, clank, mm-hmm. lock. Mm-hmm. That protected me. Mm-hmm. But it also protected me from love and connection. Yeah. And when I move out of the um, paradigm of, you know, defense and all of that, I can say, wow, that really helped me because, like you said, I might have actually had a breakdown of some sort had I not built that wall. So, gratitude in what ways is it serving me? In what ways is it not? What do I really want? I really want love and connection. And then I'm in the frequency of what I do want instead of what I don't want. That's how real change happens. That's why if you look at addiction or mental health or anxiety or depression, let's not go into the wrongness of it. Medication can help, but medication can also be part of the we need to get rid of this. Yeah, I mean, no one wants to experience debilitating anxiety, but if we only treat the symptom, it's never really going to get better. Mm -hmm. What is the anxiety managing? What's Mm -hmm. really going on? Mm -hmm. When we start to become curious about that, we can start to heal instead of treat. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, that's what we all want. We all want a life filled with love, connection, awe. We all really fundamentally want that. Yeah. TJ and I have a mutual mentor, Krista Gilbert, is that fair for me to say that she's your mentor? She know. is one of my favorite people on the planet. Yeah. And she is often talking about acting from abundance instead of scarcity. So like when she comes in and takes over a company as she is wanting to do, because she's amazing, they hire her to here, take this company over, fix it. She, instead of sh- like cutting paychecks and kind of shrinking things down and trying to make the budget work, she does the opposite. She opens, she braces everyone's pay literally and she opens up new centers and she just she just operates from this position of abundance 
because she doesn't look at what isn't working or what what shouldn't be or what it's this focus on the positive. Yeah, I just spoke on a webinar a few days ago. I mentioned Krista, actually. One of the questions was, how do I work with a client that is resistant? Become curious about the part of them that wants to be in the room. Unless they're shackled to the chair, there is a part of them that wants to be in the room. So rather than like spending so much energy on the way they're not you know, wanting yeah. to get better, there is a part of them that does. How do we focus on that and create a space for that to grow? There's this modality called solution-focused therapy, and their core belief is kind of cool. It's that there's no such thing as a resistant client. There's only inflexible therapists. Mm. And I just think that's so brilliant because when people commit evil acts with the externalization stuff that we all talk about, everyone's trying to heal themselves. Drug addicts, mass murderers, all those people are essentially trying to get better in a really twisted way. If that's true, you can always connect. You can always find something that someone is trying to improve, even if it's something you don't like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, another way to say it is there's a part of me that wants to get better always. Yeah. There's a part of me that is wanting to, now we can use the term heal, but it's really to, to acknowledge my wholeness. Yeah. There's a part of me that wants to know that fully. Yeah. And maybe there's a part of me that wants to resist that because mm -hmm. of all my programming and my fear. So, you know, in therapy or even with friends or in community, can we devote time to looking at that and cultivating that, that part of us that wants to connect and heal? The more we do that, the more of that gets created. Recently in our world, we had this pandemic that happened, right? And a lot of people went into fear. A lot of people went into becoming really curious about how they could serve. That's a really different way of looking at it. Some people became really curious of how we expand during this time. Again, it doesn't mean that we're saying that people aren't experiencing pain because of it. Right. See, that's the program. How can you say that when people are dying? Well, that's a part of our human experience. Yeah. I create what I focus on. When I was at Pacifica Graduate Institute, they showed this documentary. I wish I remember the name of it, but it was about a man with cancer give him like six months to live and he was having all these really really intense dreams where he would open up his closet as a kid and his little stuffed dog would speak to him and they would have conversations about the psyche and about god and and he was doing all this prayer and all this meditation kind of a way to kind of try to maybe heal himself or who knows what and at one point someone says well aren't, aren't you aren't you hoping weren't you hoping for a miracle and he says there was a miracle it happened and then he, he says that, and then this thing comes up that says, you know, so-and-so died at such and such and such and such. And so it had nothing to do with beating anything. It was like a totally different position on what it meant to move forward. Yeah. I mean, what could be more futile than hoping we don't die? Yeah. I mean, that's pain. That's a painful existence. Yeah. My Angelou said, when I really understood that I would die, I began to live. I heard a woman speak once that had done hospice care for 20 years. She talked about the profound moments of people's transition being some of the most beautiful parts of life. And she did a talk called What Death Teaches Us About Life. It's a nice concept to say, oh, I can live more fully when I really appreciate that this is not permanent, but to really lean into that and actually understand we are here for a limited amount of time. None of us know. This is why when there's something like a pandemic or a 9-11, people really freak out because it really is a profound example of we don't know what's going to happen.
right? And so if I'm, the more I'm in touch with my wholeness, the less afraid I am of that. I don't know what day I'm going to die. You know, let's go back to something really simple. Snoopy and Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown says to Snoopy, Snoopy, we're going to die one day. And Snoopy says, yeah, but every other day we're going to live. (laughs) That's good. If we really lean into that, that's a philosophy for living. Every day I am here to live. You know, we have entire religions, which by the way, for the most part are egoic structures because it's about belief. There are entire religions that focus on what's going to happen after we die instead of what can we do today to live. It's a profoundly different way of being. And I think a lot of religions do that because religions are usually regurgitations of some of a Gnostic like a, an inner vision and then that inner vision everyone's like wow that's really amazing and then it gets regurgitated through a through a narrow ego lens and you get an orthodox religion correct which is why you get this weird swing when religions become super super orthodox and this is how it's done and then you have one person breaking out of it going no 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 this is this is all wrong let's do it this way and everyone's like oh my god you're incredible let's follow you you had no no don't follow me you know jung said that one of the best things about jung is that he didn't have to be a jungian <laughs> you know Amen. anyway so i guess what we're looking at is if I had to sum up our conversation here, it'd be like how to follow the light in the world and the light in yourself. Absolutely. And just step into that more. Going back to Krista Gilbert, I had the opportunity to spend about 15 minutes with her, which I appreciate every time I get that amount of time with her. I know, right? Um, And it was in San Diego a couple of years ago. And I was talking with her about conscious recovery and my ideas for growing conscious recovery. And she did the very typical Krista. She looked me in the eye and she said, (laughs) Oh God. I wonder what would happen if you simply leaned into how profound conscious recovery is and the profound gift that it is for the planet and don't try to figure out anything else. Yeah. Just be with that knowing, right? And that's that's the teaching, right? That's That's the teaching that I have been in for 30 years. That's the new thought teaching. It's focus on the energy of that instead of the particulars because I made the statement to her, I want to see conscious recovery in at least 1,000 treatment programs in the next decade. And she said, that's when she looked at me and said, how about if you spend time really sitting with the profound nature of the gift that it is? Yeah. And that to me is really life. That's it. Can I tap into that part of me that is abundant? Right. The treatment centers will follow. Yeah. Uh, Life is energy. Yeah. Leonard Nimoy, he looked at, when he got famous, he was really confused by it. And he looked up, he was reading some philosopher. He was looked up the word popularity and the philosopher said, popularity, the crumbs of greatness. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Anyway, I think we're done. What do you think? I I feel complete. As a matter of fact, I feel whole and complete. You do. I do. Well, that's fantastic. Um, Mr. Woodward, I really appreciate your time and I, I love you to pieces and I hope to do more of these and I'm, I don't think I'm going to edit very much of this. This is going to like come straight out of the can. Perfect. uh, Well, thank you so much. Thank you. And to all the listeners, I so appreciate your time and your energy and your willingness to play in the field of infinite potential. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Pertinent information stemming from this podcast will appear in the program notes. Should you have any questions or would like to be a guest on my show, you may contact me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com or go to my website at benjaminrusick.com. I encourage you to subscribe, share, and all the rest. Thanks again. And remember, whenever you find that your plate is full, you can push a few things off to the side or you can get yourself a bigger plate. <laughs>